to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. You know, we, we recently uh, moved to a house, you know, we've uh, been living there for almost one month now, and so uh, really enjoying uh, having our own space. Um, yeah, it's delightful. We're in Simei. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God's, God's land. So Simei, Simei is really good. <laughs> really good. Uh, we're enjoying it. Um, you know, uh, when we first bought the house, you know, we bought uh, it with like, you know, the location in mind and like it looked like, it looked sizable and we could do a lot with it. And so, you know, uh, I would say we bought it in a real hurry. You know, we, we uh, could uh, spend more time um, really thinking through and really evaluating. But, you know, we're like, hey, this is good. Let's just snap it. And so we did. And then I remember um, the first day I, I got the, the keys to the house and uh, I walked in and the owner wasn't there. The house was all cleared up. And I looked at the house and I was like, man. And, you know, I, I wish I can tell you I'm like a glass half full kind of a guy, but for the most, most of the time, you know, I'm a glass half empty kind of guy. I'm, I relate more with being a pessimist. I'm like, you know, here are all the flaws kind of a thing. It's a real joy and privilege to live with me. And so I'm like, wow, where, where are all the spots and marks? And so, you know, I walked in and I was like, man, you know, this ceiling a bit lower. And then I was like, why the floor like that? And I was like, why is there a beam here? And I remember like I opened the, the window and then like I pushed it out and then a knob started falling off. I was like, what is this? What did I just buy? You know? And by then I was all committed already. And you know, <laughs> this is like the biggest purchase of my life. My wife is really excited about it. And I looked at it and I was like, man, I just can't see myself living here. <laughs> and this was like one day into buying the house. Brilliant, huh, this guy. Anyway, um, and so, you know, I was like, Johnny Amy was like, man, you know, we'll just do the bare minimum and we'll just like, you know, live the bare minimum and then after that we'll move out of this like Simei place, leave Jason on his own. Jason can like make his own friends. And so, and so you know, uh, yeah, I'm just letting you in my process. Uh, don't judge yet. You know, but, but then I was like, okay, you know what? Oh, sorry. I was like, okay, you know what? I, I won't live here for long. And uh, afterwards, oh, <laughs> oh, oh wrong baby. <laughs> Uh, afterwards, you know, um, Amy was like, you know, why don't we just go down and, uh, and uh, go and find, find a bike to it? And so I walked downstairs, and uh, we were pretty near East Point. East Point is a mall in the east, if your people don't know where East Point is. It used to have, like, all the... It used to have a lot of bank store, but now it's really reformed, and it's beautiful now. <laughs> it's, uh, they, they went through this massive reformation. That's the only way I can describe it. And so, uh, yeah, East Point is beautiful. And so... Uh, and so you walked in, and uh, on the way there, I was like, man, you know, it has Indian rojak, and I love Indian rojak, you know. And then I was like, man, you know, there's this like nasi lemak store. I was like, I love nasi lemak. And then we walked on the way there, then I was like, there's a McDonald's. I was like, who would think in Simei there's McDonald's? And then I was like, there's a McDonald's, and every Saturday I have the same McDonald's breakfast. Um, I've been doing that for like the past three years. I know, creature of habit weird person. But I was like, whoa, there's a McDonald's. I was like, oh, there's a KFC. And then I walked in and then, you know, there's this, I don't like wonton mee because it's too sweet, but uh, there's only one wonton mee that I like, which is Eng's wonton mee, which is uh, a real, like, very spicy chili. It's like drier, you know, it's a, a bit more on the savory, salty side. Then I was like, you know, I was like, I didn't even know Eng's had outlets and branches, but I walked in and I was like, there's Eng's wonton mee and then there's a Daiso next to it. Then I tell Amy, I was like, this is it. This is the promised land. I was like, I was like, we'll live here forever. You know, and I could imagine, you know, like bring my kids down on Saturday morning to have breakfast at McDonald's. Could imagine myself having a stressful day. I was like, man, I need some eggs. I can just walk and, and eat eggs. I was like, man, all the right foods are there. You know, it's like my stars align. You know? like, I was like, that's all I need, all I want, you know. And, and Amy and Jesus, of course, but like food-wise, I was like, it's all I need, all I want, and all the right foods are there. You know, I've been thinking uh, in the, the last couple of weeks, like, isn't it funny how food uh, brings so much comfort, security, and joy? You know, there's something about food, right? You know, like, uh, you know, if uh, you hear of someone like that's fallen sick, like, let me like bring some food over to you. Someone that just broke up, like, let me take you out for a meal. You know, someone that is going through a grieving process, like, let me buy food, like, shove food down your throat. And it's like, it brings so much comfort, joy, and security, right? That's what food is uh, to a lot of us. 
Singapore is a food city, are we not? It's a foodie paradise. Anyone that has traveled, they can have my picture up of like food. This is just like a sampling, right? Tutu kueh, Hokkien mee, kueh pai tea, coin prata. I don't even know what's the other one, but... Now all of you are thinking of lunch plans. Uh. I think it's 100% kind of rate, right? Whenever I mention KFC in church, some life group will go for KFC for lunch. And so it's called like Inception. <laughs> Singapore is a food city, a foodie paradise. Like, we literally have buildings that look like food. We do. We literally have buildings that look like food. It's a food city, right? Out of like every 10 bloggers, this statistics, right? Out of every 10 bloggers, one would blog about fashion, the other nine would blog about food. When Singaporeans are polled and asked what's the national pastime of Singaporeans, majority of respondents said, Eating. Praying? No, it's eating. <laughs> Options, cuisines. These days, you don't even have to leave your home for food, right? Accessibility, but also access. We live in a day of access and access. Food waste accounts for 10% of the total waste generated in Singapore, if you, if you don't know that. In Singapore, food waste has risen 40% over the past 10 years. In 2017, 800 tons of food was wasted. That would amount to 2.5 bowls of food per person every day. That's the level of food wastage we have in Singapore. That will fill up more than 1,500 Olympic-sized swimming pools per year. That's how much food we waste. We live in a day of food access and excess. It's supposed to sound better than excess and excess. <laughs> it's true, right? Do we agree on that, yes? I read an article online that uh, when asked, the writer, when asked to describe the definitive Singaporean culture, the writer wrote that ours is a culture of gluttony. Ours is a culture of gluttony. We literally had a, have a place in Singapore named Gluttons by the Bay. Ours is a culture of gluttony. That sounds awesome, doesn't it? Like gluttony, that is so awesome. Like, e -e -e. But do you know that in all of church history, Gluttony is viewed as one of the cardinal sins of the human condition. This just got real, <laughs> real tough. Oh, it's going to get worse. Brace yourself. Gluttony, in my opinion, is the least talked about sin in the church by far. By far. Our picture of gluttony looks like an overweight person, ill-fitting shirt, stomach bulging out with a huge bucket of KFC, just like gorging and shoving volumes and volumes and volumes of food. That is our image of gluttony. But gluttony, if I can give you a base definition, is just an obsessive love of food. An obsessive love of food to the point of overindulgence. For some, it manifests in volume consumption, more and more and more. Others, it manifests in how much money you actually devote to food. And for most of us, it's about how much food or the lack of it affects our emotional equilibrium and spiritual state, or hangry. <laughs> for the Romans, the picture of success is a man seated on a chair, surrounded by half-chewed bones of meat and olive pips. That is what success looked like in the Roman world. Full of meat, full of food indulgence, being stuffed with food overwhelmed with sheer volume. It wasn't so much about presentation, but quantity. But today, our relationship with food is something utterly different. Food is something that we all curate. Think king, kinfolk, tables of delight, snap it before you eat it. Let's do an honest mental search of our Instagram profile, how much food is actually on there, think about it. Food is something that we all crave, not just uh, when we need to, but even in this moment. It occupies our thought life. As I'm talking and as I've had that picture up, all of you are thinking, where shall I go for lunch? <laughs> like, and you, you plan and map out your days, your weeks, or like what you're going to eat each and every day. What I'm, getting to, uh, what I'm getting at is this today. Food has become something that we worship and idolize. I know this is not a fun sermon. But food has become something worship. Now, that's a really strong statement. But let me explain to you what I mean by worship. No one thinks that they worship food. Do you worship food? Do you put a foot on a pedestal and go like, food, food, 
None of y'all do that, right? No Christian wants to worship food. Yet our appetites, our desire to eat can preoccupy our schedules and plans to the point where it becomes one of our primary life goals. Some think about food continually, imagining what they will eat next, fantasizing and ordering their days around it. They don't even recognize that they have been caught in the snare of putting their trust and their affections in food. This false trust manifests itself when we eat to calm our nerves, to have courage to face our fears, to cover the reality of our internal struggles, and to feel comfort and joy. If you are honest, okay, what will you describe as something you order your life around, something that brings you joy, comfort, something that calms your nerves, something that you need to face your fears? Words like a God, small g, idol, spiritual stronghold will come to mind. And for most of us, that idol is an idol of food. Though we are not bowing down, singing praise songs, and worshipping our bellies, we may be more ensnared than we think. Welcome to church. How are you all doing? <laughs> you know, someone said, it, said to me last week that, eh, Andre, the church looks a bit full. Then I was like, you know, when Jesus was faced with a crowd, he like shared some very tough sermon and he cowed the crowd down. And so I figured, you know, why not? You know, let's, let's just test where we're at spiritually. Let's just give a hard one and see how many of y'all come back next week. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying food is bad. I'm not saying food. Look at me. Look at me. I'm not saying food is bad. I'm not saying eat tapioca pudding and oatmeal for your whole life. Oatmeal just tastes like cardboard to me. You don't get to enjoy anything. You can't love or enjoy your food. That's not what I'm saying at all. Hear me in this. No, after this, my cell group will probably go eat some very decadent thing as we do on Sundays. But we have to all admit that there is a point of obsession that we are to be mindful of. A place where our loves and longings inhibit our pursuit of Jesus. A good sermon to listen to to balance out this teaching is my teaching on celebration on feasting. That would be a good kind of balance kind of thing. God created food. He created your senses, your taste buds. Food is a gift from God for you to enjoy. Do we agree on that? Yes? But much like the good gifts in life, sex, money, alcohol, influence, we as human beings have the tendency to turn good gifts into our God. If the gift is not awakening a sense that God, the giver, is better than the gift, that gift is becoming an idol. John Piper has a brilliant quote. Let's just put it up. John Piper says this, The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Do we have a slide before this? No? says this, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. <laughs> it is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video. Now this quote is really old. But the prime time dribble of trivility we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen and a wife. I'm not saying get rid of your wives, but let's do it next time. But the greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. The truth I'd like to push to you today is this. There is an undeniable relationship between the love of food, the obsessive love of food, overindulgence in food and sin. There's an undeniable relationship between the love of food and sin. And we see it play out all through the Bible. Gluttony or excess of food uh, help earn a curse or utter destruction upon Sodom. It says in, in Ezekiel about Sodom, they were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. In Moses' day, when Israel grew disgruntled and craved meat in the wilderness, the Lord sent quail. And it says this in Scripture, while the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Strikingly, the name of the place was called Kibroth Hatava, which means the graves of craving. Drunkards or liquid blaze gluttons will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Gluttony, if I can put it plainly, it is when we are slaves 
to our bodily urges. When we are unable to be masters of our feelings and our urges and give into them completely, where our body has become the master of our soul and we are simply put slaves to it. That is what gluttony essentially is. And we know that the human body battles more than just urges surrounding food. There's so much that pulls us living in the world today. So many urges that we fight, that we battle. And that's what Thomas Kempis writes, restrain from gluttony and thou shalt the more easily restrain all the inclinations of the flesh. Augustine wrote this, because it is sometimes necessary to check the delight of the flesh in respect to licit pleasures in order to keep it from yielding to illicit joys. Food is not the issue. It is a gift from God. It is a good thing. But when we let God's good gift to us take priority, take precedence over the things of God, over the, the, the drawing and the invitations of God, that's when it becomes an idol and that's where we need to get it fixed. Is there a spiritual practice in the life of Jesus that speaks into this human struggle, one of food obsession, but more than that, it is the temptation to exalt the gift above the giver, to idolize the pleasures of life? Is there a practice to disrupt the routine of gluttony to realign our loves and longings? And you know where I'm going with this. My question, my answer to you is yes. And that spiritual practice is that of fasting. Much like there is an undeniable relationship between food and sin, there is an undeniable relationship all through scriptures between fasting and freedom. Between fasting and freedom. Fasting is about freedom. It's not tyranny. It's not oppression. It is not a, a yoke, a burdensome yoke. It is about freedom. And that's the case that I'm making to you this morning. Fasting is about freedom. Or as Jensen Franklin puts it, Fasting is dethroning king's stomach. Fasting is dethroning king's stomach. For week three of spiritual practices, I'd like to speak to you on the subject of fasting. Fasting. <laughs> you guys are... <laughs> can, we ever, can we even eat lunch later? We'll get there. We live in a culture not only of food, but excess, do we? luxury and addiction, what psychologists call the pleasure principle. For so many of us, the desires of our body have come to hold power over us. In the battle with our flesh, we have become its slave, not its master. Fasting is an ancient Christian discipline to break the power of the flesh in our life, our desires, our sins, our cravings, and to feed on the Holy Spirit. We fast from the things of the world and it's a divine exchange, and then we feast on the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6. This is Jesus' instruction on fasting in Matthew chapter 6. He says this, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. He's referring to Pharisees. For they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you that they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, or in modern translation, pomade, or, you know, hair gel, you know, don't come all disheveled. Wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We'll come back to this verse later on. Fasting is on the rise today. It is on the rise today, but not the kind that we think. You know, uh, we see fasting being played out as a political tool, Think Gandhi, think uh, Nelson Mandela, fasting as a political tool. But there's also um, the resurgence or the, the emergence of fasting in uh, the secular age today. You know, we live in an interesting cultural moment. Um, you know, recently I was speaking, I was having lunch with some guy and uh, the guy said, oh, I'm not eating, I'm, I'm fasting. I'm like, oh, uh, what kind of fast? Like ketogenic, intermittent? And then he was like, no, Bible one. Like, oh, okay. Very, in very interesting. And then I felt like, I should give up my ministry credentials and I should quit my job. And I was like, you and your spiritual high horse, get off it. And I, like, I, was like, I was like, man, you know, interesting cultural moment, do we, yeah? We have all sorts of variants of fast emerging, right? You know, like there is the 16-8, the 5-2, the warrior diet, the alternate day, ketogenic, all these kind of things. All of you who are going similar, man, get with the program, you know? 
be woke. <laughs> but not only that, we also have all sorts of variants of fasting in the church. Today, there's the Jews fast, the Daniel fast, the sex fast, the partial fast, the social media fast, the shopping fast, the negativity fast. You name it, we can fast it. So it does us good to come back to a baseline definition of what biblical fasting is, what fasting means to biblical authors, to Jesus. Now, this is our definition of fasting. Fasting is this. Biblical fasting is a willing abstinence from food for a spiritual purpose. A willing abstinence from food for a spiritual purpose. It is not refraining from things. Fasting is precisely about food. I know some of you all have done social media fasts or you fast from like, um, you know, I will not use my phone, or you fast from things, you know, but I'd like to put it to you, I'd like to present a case today that fasting precisely relates to your consumption of food. Precisely relates to your consum- consumption of food. And it's also uh, fasting, for the most part, and all uh, New Testament scholars will agree, and uh, studies of uh, the early church will agree, that fasting is not a restricted diet. To the biblical authors and to most New Testament scholars, fasting was precisely about not consuming not consuming food. It was either an absolute or a normal fast. Absolute means no food, no water. Normal fast means no food, but you still can drink water. And there's the emergence of something called the Daniel fast, which is a partial fast, which is you only eat greens. And it's really vague kind of a thing because you know, it's like Daniel didn't consume, consume food that brought delight and joy to his heart. And this is a really debatable thing, like what is delight and what is joy and all, all that good stuff. Um, and Daniel fast is a, a fast that... Uh, a lot of churches really partake in, um, and this is a debatable thing. But uh, if you actually read the scriptures in Daniel, Daniel withheld himself from all these food, and in no way in that passage was the word fast ever mentioned. It was something that uh, we have kind of took on as a church uh, group. And so, you know, you do you, boo, but this is my, uh, my own kind of uh, position. I believe that fasting uh, precisely relates to your consumption of food precisely relates to consumption of food. And fasting, I believe, biblical fasting done right, is the total abstinence of food, which comes in the form of either a normal fast, which is food, no water, uh, food, no food, but you still can drink water, and an absolute fast, which is no food, no water, which I think if you do that in the modern day, it has to be like an invitation of the Lord. You have to do so in medical supervision, and I'll have all that good stuff out for you on the notes if you want to do fasting. Our culture today has shifted the meaning of fasting from the traditional practice of land to the refraining of things. Land, okay, as the Jews know it, was not eating throughout the course of the day and then eating after dark. It was a complete abstinence, not just bits of refraining. Like, you know, I won't put milk in my coffee, I won't have bacon in my eggs, that kind of thing. Even when we talk about Lent today, we talk about Lent often, right? Lent, okay, in the modern vernacular in the church sounds like, oh, I'm giving up like milk in my coffee for land. I'm giving up like eggs for land. I'm giving up this and that for land. But land, as understood traditionally by the Jews, was the complete abstinence of food from, uh, from evening to evening, and they will only eat after dark. Social media fasts are really popular today. It's probably very much needed in our digital age. It may be good for you. It may be good for your self-esteem. It may be good to give you breakthroughs in joy. That is good, but it is not fasting. You know, all through the Bible, there are like, uh, you know, commands or um, uh, even uh, assumptions that we can pull to abstain from certain things. And, you know, it's very much part of tradition, our church tradition to abstain from certain things uh, that inhibit uh, your walk with Jesus. But it is what it is. It's an abstinence from things. It's not fasting. Fasting is about food and our relationship to food. Fasting is, our relation, is about our relationship and provision of physical food and our passion and desire for spiritual food. It's saying no to lesser, even legitimate, legitimate pleasurable things and saying yes, a larger legitimate yes to greater things. You with me? Let me give a biblical basis for fasting. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, familiar passage, really early on the Bible. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Do I have a next slide? 
You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, flat out lie. For God knows that when you eat it, it from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed thick leaves together and made coverings for themselves. No matter how you read it, you can't get past the fact that original sin had to do with food. I have heard a bunch of teachings on Genesis 3, but never has someone pointed out the fact that original sin had to do with the consumption of food. Man's inability to not eat something that was in front of him. However you read Genesis, that has got to mean something. It has got to mean something. The temptation was not about food per se. It was not. It was about redefining what is good and evil, to redefine good and evil based on your own gut and instinct, or as St. Uh, Ignatius of Loyola put it, sin is our unwillingness to believe that God, what God wants is our deepest happiness. That is the temptation. The temptation is to redefine good and evil. But notice what is the means of temptation. Food. To eat or not to eat. That is the question. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4. Familiar passage, we've read this for the last two weeks, so you should be really familiar by now. But Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 says this, or Jesus. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Miraculous verse. After he was done, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, this is kind of like a deja vu moment, right? The devil is there, he's tempting. It is, there's food, but it's not really about food. It's kind of about food, but not really. It is significant, I like to point to you, and most scholars will agree that this moment is a real significant moment, and it relates precisely to Genesis chapter 3. It's significant for us to note that the way the Son of God started His ministry on earth was with a 40-day fast. Significant for us to note that Jesus saw fit for Him to start His ministry on earth with a fast. He saw that fasting, the practice of fasting, was necessary for Him to do so in order to live into the vision of human flourishing. The Son of God himself saw fasting as a necessary practice. But today, most of us see it as a peripheral side practice only for gung-ho, crazy people who like, don't have good taste buds. Matthew 4, this is Jesus replaying the Genesis story all over again. Face to face with the tempter. It's kind of about food, but not really. Jesus was hungry. Can we agree on that? He was hungry. Jesus ate. He was not like... He didn't transcend hunger. He was hungry. He was physically hungry. His physical longings after a 40-day fast was out of control. Yet when he was tempted, he resisted the devil. Jesus is known as the second Adam. The first Adam, however, was surrounded by food and provision in the garden. He was surrounded by abundance. Yet when he was tempted, he gave in. Jesus was on a food fast while outwardly he was dis disciplining his life. Inwardly, he was being renewed with power. Unlike Adam and Eve who failed, Jesus succeeded. Where we were defeated, Jesus succeeded. And instead of that, and because of that, instead of slavery, he opened up a way to the kingdom in which all of us will be liberated. Now note this, how did Jesus succeed where Adam and Eve failed? How did he succeed? If we read that, that whole chunk of scripture, a few practices we get observed from the text. Jesus practiced silence and solitude. He took time away. He prayed a lot. And the third practice we observe from the life of Jesus is the practice of fasting. After fasting, was he weak? Yes and no. Yes, he was physically weak, 
But no, he was stronger than he ever was before. Scholars would agree that only after fasting did Jesus have the spiritual powers to take on the devil. Though he was physically weak, spiritually he was stronger than he ever was before. The Bible notes that in Matthew chapter uh, 4, he was led into the wilderness, being full of the Holy Spirit. But after the entire ordeal, he left the wilderness being full of the power of the Holy Spirit. He entered full of the Spirit, but he left full of the power of the Holy Spirit because he fasted. Let's be honest here. There is so much confusion in the church today around fasting, right? So much confusion. How many of you grew up hearing the word fasting? How many of you, it brings up traumatic memories? Yeah? <laughs> Did I tell you like, don't eat! You know, and so I don't want to eat. Is fasting part of the new covenant? You know, fasting is hard. Is fasting even necessary? Didn't Jesus come and the kingdom of God is supposed to be defined by joy? Why do we still fast? Isn't the bridegroom here? Why do we even fast? There has not been an aspect of my theology that has been as dramatically, uh, how do I put it? Drastically and repeatedly changed as much as fasting. I've changed my position on fasting like all the time, you know, and most of the time, midway through the fast. You know, I go like, <laughs> I want to fast. And then midway through the fast, it's like, man, you know, I think the bridegroom's here. Well, fast, you know, isn't this legal? And midway, I change it. How many of you relate? Yeah? Just Andre? Just Andre and Daniel. We are human. Why are we even pastors? You know? But I've been a hardcore faster. Okay, you might not be able to tell, but, you know, I, I have had a long history of fasting. I do. I've had a long history of fasting. I do, I do. You might not believe it, right? But I've had a long history of fasting. You know? I've been a hardcore faster. You know, I fast every time I did any form of ministry. Every time I needed God to do something for me, I'd be like, I need to go on a fast. You know, I remember fasting for a week before my first sermon. That's, I was like, I need to fast. You know, and I've also been a critic of fasting. You know, when people fast, I'm like, oh, you Old Testament legalistic person. <laughs> I've also been a critic. You know, I, I, let's be honest, I've been a critic. And uh, I've also been a casual kind of faster. You know, sometimes, you know, I, I forget to eat my lunch. And I'm like, I'm just going to turn it into a fast. You know, I've been that kind of faster also. <laughs> Don't laugh. Confirm y'all do before. Like, I was like, forget to eat. And I was like, yeah, this is for you, Jesus. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, when you, when you forget someone's birthday, then you reach a forget. It's like, yeah, I bought this for you. <laughs> kind of a thing, right? Some of you have done that. Let's be real, yeah? <laughs> but, you know, I, I cannot think of a single practice that has been as effective in giving me clarity of purpose, uh, overcoming sin, experiencing the tangible presence of God like fasting. I cannot think of a singular spiritual practice that has been as effective as fasting. But yet at the same time, I absolutely hate fasting. I absolutely loathe it. If you love fasting, yeah. you are a saint. <laughs> and we should put your picture up. If I were to ask you the question today, what role, let's be honest, okay, I have uh, broken more fast than I've completed fast, okay? I've, I've been, I'm an avid fast starter, never a fast finisher. <laughs> but role, if I ask you a question, what role does fasting, the willing abstinence from food for your spiritual purpose, play in your discipleship to Jesus today? What role does fasting play in your discipleship to Jesus today? Most of you will go like, eh, uh, isn't that legalism, you know? I would fast for CrossFit, but fasting for Jesus, like that's like Old Testament legalistic nonsense. Let's do a poll now, okay? No judgment, no criticism. How many of you uh, have fasted from never to once in your life? How many of you? Never to once in your life. Hands up? Okay. Awesome. How many of you have fasted, um, fast maybe once a year? Once a year. Fasting once a year? Okay, some of you. How many of you fast twice a year? Twice a year, some of you? How many fast once a month? No. <laughs> Me neither. And how many of you fast? How many of you fast once a week? How many of you fast twice a week? Now, isn't that obsessive, right? Once a week, twice a week, that's so much. Who does that? Let's be honest, I only fast like once a year. I am like, it's kind of like a box I check off. But it's like, wow. Who fasts once a month? Who fasts once a week? What kind of saint does that? Let me give you a bit of history of fasting, okay? In Jesus' uh, day and age, the first century world, most Jews and all the Pharisees, most Jews and all the Pharisees would fast twice a week, every Monday and every Thursday. They would willingly abstain from food for a good part of the day. 
twice a week. Fasting was one of the core practices of that day and age. The early church continued in this tradition of bi-weekly fasting, but changed it from Monday to Thursday to Wednesday and Friday. And this is one of the early church documents. It's called the Didache. And uh, as far as we know it, it's as old as uh, some of the New Testament, and it's from the first century. Let's have the quote up from the Didache. It says this, But do not let your fast coincide with those of the hypocrites. By that, they mean the Pharisees. They fast on Mondays and Thursdays, so you must fast on Wednesday and Friday. So we know that passive-aggressive, grumpy Christians originated far... They have always been around. They have always been around. It's nothing new. Nothing new on the side. The early church, for a very long time, practiced this rhythm of fasting. They would fast twice a week. As far as you know it, you know, it, it, they, they did so up to the point of even John Wesley. And fasting is a tradition that we've lost uh, maybe in the last hundred years. But John Wesley writes this about fasting. He says this. Let's have the John Wesley quote up. I fear there are now thousands of Methodists, so-called, passive-aggressive again, beautiful, <laughs> both in England and in Ireland, who following the same bad example had entirely left off fasting, who are so far from fasting twice a week, they do not even fast twice in a month. You know who you are, Christians, so-called. The man who never fasts is no more in the way to heaven than the man who never prays. Ugh. John Wesley. Now, I wouldn't say that I completely agree with Wesley and Wesley's position, but the, the, the picture I want to paint to you is this, that fasting has been viewed as one of the central practices, a core practice in living into the way of Jesus up till recent years in the church. It was very much practiced by Jesus, his disciples, the early church, up to the point of John Wesley, as we can see it. But today, fasting is viewed as a non-essential, a peripheral, a side thing. If you look up uh, the word fasting, and when it was mentioned or done so in the Bible, a list of fasting, you will see this uh, in any theological book. This is a, a, a snapshot of uh, all the times fasting was explicitly mentioned in Scripture, from public calamities, accompanied by prayer, confession, humiliation, was habitually practiced, times of bereavement, prolonged, so on and so forth. I won't hit the list. Fasting, rather than being some peripheral kind of note, is actually central. It's close to the core of what devotion looks like for the people of God. It was central for Jesus and his disciples. If you were at all serious in following Jesus in that day, you would fast. Now, saying it in our day and age, thoughts like, is this a cult? Sounds weird. Is this the law? Is this legalism? In our do-what-feels-good instant gratification kind of culture, the idea of going without food sounds downright cultish, crazy, discomforting at best. But fasting is an ancient practice central to the way of Jesus that has been so lost on the 21st century church. Let's look again at fasting in Matthew chapter 6. It says this, Jesus says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. Note that first line, when you fast. Jesus assumes that all of y'all would fast. He's very, he's very optimistic about that. When you fast, when? So many question marks. Do, you, do not look somber as hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There are two assumptions uh, that Jesus uh, makes uh, in Matthew chapter 6. One, he assumes that all of you will fast, that fasting is downright normal, natural for the believer. The second assumption that Jesus makes is that at some point we will mess it up. <laughs> at some point we will mess up this whole thing of fasting, that we will do it for the wrong intention. A couple of wrong intentions. It's when we use fasting to validate our spirituality. Uh, there's this story, uh, there's this parable in Luke 18 of a Pharisee and the tax collector uh, approaching the temple ground. And um, the Pharisee uh, stood by himself and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other man because I fast twice a week and I pay my tithe. Thank you, like, I'm not like him, this sinner. Fasting in that day or having a rhythm of fasting was a uh, barometer for spirituality. It was the way they validated their spirituality. And uh, Jesus is essentially saying that uh, do not fast as the hypocrites do, using fasting as a means of proving how spiritual you are. It's not the point. 
And the other way we use fasting with, uh, for wrong intentions is when we use it as a means of manipulating God with our physical body. We think that we can manipulate God, that we can twist God's arm by going on a hunger strike. That is actually a pagan belief, real common with the worshippers of Baal. They will mutilate their bodies in order to get their God to move. And that is something that's been debunked, uh, uh, torn down by the early church. And uh, I'll, I'll speak more to, about that later. But those are wrong intentions. Today, as I close, I'd like to talk about um, some good biblical intentions for fasting. I'll only be able to cover a few of the many. You, know, you can check out books. There's like many. There's like 50 reasons why you can fast. I'll only cover four. Okay? First thing. Fasting can be a means of sincere repentance. Fasting as sincere repentance. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 23. Wow, this church read Leviticus. Come on, man. <laughs> the Lord said to Moses, the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. Yom Kippur. Yom, Yom Kippur. Well, I pronounce like Singapore. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. <laughs> Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves. That word deny, um, in some translation, is the word afflict yourself. Now you go, what? Afflict yourself? Um, but you know, it's actually a, a synonym for fasting. Deny yourselves, afflict yourself, fast. And present a food offering to the Lord. Those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from their people. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Not a one-off thing, not a thing you check off on your list, but a lasting ordinance for generations to come. Wherever you live, it's a day of Sabbath rest, for you and you must deny yourselves from the evening of the ninth day of the ninth month until the following evening you are to observe your Sabbath. To this day, Orthodox Jews fast for a full day, 24 hours, evening to evening, every single year on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur to repent for all of the previous year's sin. That what fast to repent for all of the previous year's sins. Now, before you mock this as some pre-modern, legalistic, ancient, misogynistic, self-hatred nonsense, consider how in our culture, both secular and church, there is little to no place for the confession of sin. And then consider how guilt and shame lives in the back of our head and all the dysfunctional ways it plays out in our lives. For the Catholics, they have uh, confession booths. You know, um, I read an article, interestingly, this week, and it says that uh, um, the majority of Catholics, I think something like 80%, some very crazy high number, only uh, go to confession booths uh, twice a year, uh, before Good Friday and on Christmas. It's kind of like <laughs> something they check off uh, their list. You know, they, they have a means of uh, coming to confess, to repent of the sin, and do it twice a year. But for us... Uh, especially me, you know, who grew up in the Protestant tradition. Usually, okay, the way I do it when I sin, sorry, the way you do it when you sin, I don't sin, I'm a pastor. And in theory, <laughs> just kidding, I sin, 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 sin. Okay. Usually the way we do it when we sin is we have a thought in mind like, God, I'm so sorry, and then we move on real quickly. That's the way we kind of practice repentance, right? Or the way we confess our sin. Question is, is, is this really better than that? Is this really better than that? So often, we live in this guilt and shame. And we think, was I really forgiven? Did, did God really forgive my sin? You know, why do I still feel so much guilt and shame? Why do I still feel the weight of sin? My point here is this. Fasting is a great way to repent well. To repent well. We all know you can say sorry, right? But there are ways you can say sorry well, right? There is like, sorry law. But there is like sorry that comes with like uh, repatriation. There's sorry that comes with like right action. There's sorries that come with righting wrongdoings. That is repenting and apologizing well. Scott McKnight, a New Testament scholar, writes this about this verse. He says this, The Israelites were told to make their life uncomfortable for an entire day in order to bring their entire person into harmony with the gravity of sin and the need to turn from sin toward God. At the very core of fasting is empathy with the divine or participation in God's perception of a sacred moment. When someone dies, God is grief. When someone sins particular, particularly egregiously, God is grief. When a nation is threatened, God is grief. We could provide more examples. The point is this. Fasting empowers us to empathize with God. Fasting is about pathos, taking on the emotions of God in a given event. Fasting allows us to empathize with God. Fasting is where we feel what God feels about our sin. It's to afflict yourself for a period of time, to feel the full weight of your sin settle on your heart. 
You feel it fully on your heart. You feel the gravity of a sin. But at the same time, you allow Jesus to come to take that full weight away from your heart. It's to feel the full weight of sin on your heart and at the same time, allow him to take that full weight off of your heart. That is the way to repent well. Next reason why we fast. Fasting is to starve the flesh. To starve the flesh. Now, this is not a hunger strike. I'm not telling you like, protest. This is not the kind of flesh I'm talking about. By flesh, I don't mean your stomach. I don't, think, I don't mean your physical body. Uh, the word body in Greek is the word soma, but the word for flesh in the Greek is the word sarks. By this, mean, by this, I mean the disordered desires within you, that which is opposed to God. You have a physical body, but you also have a flesh, that which is bent in rebellion against God, that which is, uh, who lives contrary to the kingdom of God. It's the Greek word, sucks. Body, soma, flesh, sucks. And that part sucks. <laughs> you have a flesh. Bent in rebellion, helping you remember. You have a flesh. You know, the best way I can describe it is that you know, suppose I walk down the street uh, later on, you know, or uh, maybe during the week. You know, I walk down and, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm minding my own business, not really paying too much attention, and I walk past someone who's really, like, scantily dressed, you know, not wearing too much clothes. And a person walks past me and catches my eye, right? This is all hypothetical. <laughs> catches my eye. <laughs> no, I'm being really honest here, right? Catches my eye. And then all of a sudden, in that moment, just a flood of desire fills my heart to lust, to look, to linger. It just floods my heart, right? And that feeling is so strong, so real, right? But I do not want to get with that woman. I don't even know her. I don't even know her personality. I don't even know if she can cook. I don't even know. I don't want to marry her, right? My desire is for my wife. My desire is to be a good husband. My desire is to honor her in marriage but that feeling is so strong, so real. What I'd like to suggest to you is this. Your strongest feelings are not your deepest desires. Your strongest feelings are not your deep, deepest desires. The feeling can be really real, but it's not you at your truest self. And we live in this tension in this world of flesh and spirit, of holiness and sinfulness. We live in that tension every day. And that is a war that we are fighting our strongest feelings, our body urges and inclinations, and the way we know we ought to live, our deepest desires. And the best way we train ourselves in that fight is by fasting. It's by fasting. I can't think of a better tool that has helped me in overcoming sin and temptation like fasting. Fasting provides concrete, visceral practice in choosing higher principles over lower appetites. In feeling physical hunger but disregarding its pull, you teach yourself that you are the boss of your body. You don't take marching orders from your belly. You teach oneself that you are the master of your appetites. I am the master of my appetites rather than its slave. In fasting, we have to face down our appetite for food, but this hunger stands in for all our other annoying appetites. In overcoming what seems like an insatiable desire to eat, we come to realize that other desires that seemingly demand to be answered now can in fact be postponed. We come to realize we can do without. We can control the things that seek to control us. But the goal of fasting is not willpower. It's not willpower. Willpower will always get trumped by sin. Willpower will always get trumped by pornography. Willpower will always get trumped by feelings of insecurity. Willpower will always get, drawn, always get trumped by a deep-seated father wound. Willpower will simply put, will never win. In the story we read earlier about Matthew chapter 6, Jesus left the wilderness after a fast, being full of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not a willpower exercise. It is a divine exchange where our physical weakness is met with his divine strength. Sometimes you have to be empty in order to be filled. In fasting, we starve the flesh, but we feast from the spirit. We starve the flesh and we feast from the spirit. Let me book it uh, as we are running out of time. Uh, the next uh, reason why we fast is this, to fast, to stand in solidarity with the poor, to stand in solidarity with the poor. Look at Isaiah chapter 58 real quickly. 
Let's read this. This is uh, the word of God. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Now it shifts. He says this. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Next slide. It is not to share your food with hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, to clothe them and to not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. This is Isaiah chapter 58. At the time of Isaiah's prophetic ministry, the community of God was known for their intense spirituality. That's us. A personal faith, often self-centered, that neglects the kind of just community that God was looking for. And then Isaiah confronts this community of faith about fasting to remind Israel of their identity and vocation. Is this not the fasting that I have commanded you to do? When Isaiah presents uh, this vision of fasting, he essentially presents another dimension of fasting as a spiritual practice, that of standing in solidarity with the poor. When we choose this fast, we choose to allow our bodies to feel hunger. And this hunger becomes an act of solidarity with those who are hungry by no choice of their own. We feel the pain of the broken, quite literally. We align our bodies to connect with those suffering. We choose to unite our hearts with those who are experiencing poverty, homelessness, displacements, debts, you name it. I went on a fast uh, pretty recently, and I remember I was getting really hangry and disgruntled, and, uh, and all I had was a vision of 5 p.m. I get to eat. You know, I fast up to 5 p.m., and I went down for a walk, and as I was walking downstairs, I saw a few... Uh, uh, people who were on, on the streets, were sitting down on the streets, and uh, the Lord spoke to me that, no, for you there's at least a hope of relief, 5 p.m. But many live uh, lives on earth with no hope of relief. Hungry ties your heart to the pain of the broken. This kind of fast to feel what the poor feels on a daily basis is very simple and has been practiced for thousands of years within the Christian tradition. Caesarius of Arles in 6th century says this, let us fast in such a way that we lavish our lunches upon the poor so that we may not store up in our purses what we intended to eat but rather in the stomachs of the poor. Scott McKnight, New Testament scholar, says this, what we give up in food when we fast can be converted to gifts to the poor. What we give up in time not spent eating can be converted into time spent relieving injustices. Perhaps, you know, in the fast, calculate what you spend on yourself in any given day and give that money to the poor. It's not a means to save money. <laughs> that is a selfish desire. Fast with an intent to sow into the kingdom. The last one, uh, as we close, uh, here's another reason why we do fasting. Fasting is to intensify prayer, to intensify prayer. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, it says this, You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Have you ever felt a wall when you pray? Wall, W-A-L-L. -L. Have you ever felt that way? Was it just me? You know, sometimes when I pray, it feels like there's a disconnection, like the Wi-Fi is just not active. You feel like your prayers are just somehow being like intercepted and it's not going into the, the ear of God. You're not feeling that connection in prayer. And you feel almost this like deep desire, like I need to shift something. I need to change something in the way I'm praying. I'm not sure why, and I really don't have a solid explanation for this. But there's some kind of intensity in prayer when we combine fasting and prayer that gets above the normal fray of the fray of normal prayer where connections happen in the spirit and where things are released into our lives. I don't have a good solid explanation for this. It just is. It's in the economy of the kingdom. Don't get me wrong. The power is not in the practice. The power is in the person, Jesus. But this is one of those things where if you don't go through the door, you don't get the power behind it. And the door is fasting. Some things will never be released apart from prayer meetings. Some things you will never have access to apart from prayer and fasting. Strong words. You know who said that? Jesus. The story of Jesus speaking to his disciples after they couldn't cast out the demons from the demonized child, he says this, these kind only come out through prayer and fasting. You can pray about fasting, you can fast about praying, but when you put the two together, they aim and amplify each other. Scott McKnight calls fasting body talk. Body talk. It's a way of praying with your whole person, not just with your mind. A way to explain it is that we worship God in heart and in song. 
but we also worship God with our hands, with our body. And fasting is where you align your body to the desires of your heart. It is where the body comes into integrity with the words you profess. Body talk. Let's have that quote out from Limbab. She says this, The fast is somehow a decoration. This thing I'm praying for is so important that I'm willing to set aside my every life, including food, to focus on praying for it. Prayer with fasting shows sincere intention. It shows sincere intention. Uh, close with um, this last thought. How many of you have watched uh, the Christopher Nolan film, Dunkirk? Dunkirk, yeah? Dunkirk, yeah. Dunkirk, yeah. Is that the way you say it? Dunkirk. Dunkirk, yeah. <coughs> Dunkirk, yeah. <laughs> it, and it's, it's a, it's a true, true story, Dunkirk. Now, I don't know whether a bunch of you watch it, but highly recommend it. Harry Styles is in there, you know, if you're into that kind of jam, young people. But uh, in September 1939, here it is, you know, we're, we're going to wrap up slowly, just, but just track with me. In September 30, 1939, after Germany invaded Poland, the British army was sent to support their allies in France. When the Germans subsequently invaded France in May 1914, the British army, uh, three French armies and what remained of the Belgian army, found themselves trapped near the Belgian-French border. And on May 26, the British military began to implement Operation Dynamo to evacuate these allied forces from Dunkirk. Now, Bunch of us watched the film, but what the film does not show is that in a national broadcast to all of the UK, King George called for a national day of prayer and fasting to be held on May 26, the day before Operation Dynamo was to be launched. Let's have that picture up. And now this is the picture of people lining up to enter Westminster Abbey. This is the picture of people lining up to enter church to pray and to fast. And we know historically that this very scene was repeated in all churches in that land. People were flooding into churches to pray and to fast. Now, historically, we know two events immediately followed. A violent storm arose over the Dunkirk region, grounding the German fighter planes that had been killing thousands of the beaches. And then, I'm quoting these words from a historical account. It says this, a great calm descended on the channel, the like of which hadn't been seen for a generation, which allowed the evacuation to take place. From that point on, the British people began to refer to what we know as Dunkirk. The entire generation will refer to it as the miracle of Dunkirk. The miracle of Dunkirk. Hitler's failure to press an earlier attack and capture the British army on the beaches was one of his most significant military failures during the war, and it became a key turning point toward an allied victory. Point is this. There are times, ancient and modern, national and personal, where we will need a miracle. Where the circumstance, or rather the means of overcoming it, is far beyond our own ability. What if the next time we face a crisis, personal or national, instead of immediately defaulting to reactive protesting, complaining and hopelessness, what if we get on our faces to fast and pray? I wonder what kind of change we would see in our nation and in our lives if we were to do so. It was a 40-day fast that ushered in the Ten Commandments and Moses' revelation of the future of the children of Israel. Hannah fasted and God released a prophet to release the destiny of the nation. Esther fasted and the people are delivered and history changed. Jesus fasted and the first Adam's failure is undone by the new Adam who has come to overcome sin, Satan, death and hell. It is my conviction in this day and age that our hunger for God must be stronger than our hunger for food. Our culture of fasting must be stronger than our culture of gluttony. Fasting is about freedom. Freedom from your flesh, freedom from your desires. It is not bondage. It is not legalism. And as far as I can tell, there's no explicit command in the New Testament for you to fast, which says that Jesus is not going to love you more if you fast. He's not going to love you less if you don't fast. But much like the way Jesus does discipleship, it is an invitation. The spiritual practice of fasting is an invitation. You are invited to take on the life example of Jesus who thought he needed to fast in order to live well this side of resurrection. You are invited if you want more freedom, less savory, more spirit, less flesh, more holiness, less sinfulness. You are invited to bring your whole person, including your body, 
into the liberating rule and reign of King Jesus. Last quote from John Piper. It's a miracle quoting John Piper. Never again. No, I'm just kidding. John Piper is a great man. John Piper says this. Between the dangers of self-denial and self-indulgence, there is a path of pleasant pain. It is not the pathological pleasure of a messages, but the passion of a lover's quest. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, even as he demonstrated his love for us by giving of his body on the cross. Today, we get to demonstrate our love for him by giving him all of our heart, of our soul, of our mind, of our strength, our body. That is what it means to love the Lord with everything. Can we stand? Now the worship team has to challenge every, every week <laughs> to think of a response song to sing. <laughs> I will not eat my food. But, uh, but Chris has thought of it and he's going to lead us in song even as we respond to God. But, uh, but here's what I want to do before you know, we respond to God in a way. Like I, like I mentioned um, earlier in the series that uh, you know, spiritual practices, this life is not just about um, the moments that happen here, you know, transformation. Uh, for the most part, as we commonly understand, it's in the wham-bam moments in church. But uh, our working theory is that transformation, it's a byproduct of a life well-lived, a life of... Uh, uh, ordinary habits, spiritual practices that turn into a life of freedom, of liberation. And so much of uh, the transformation, uh, the power that you experience is when you disrupt your daily routines, is when you make uh, small lifestyle decisions in the right direction. And so we're going to pray into that uh, for the grace of God to lead us. Um, you know, there's going to be uh, notes that will come up for the community, uh, your various life groups to practice uh, the spiritual discipline of fasting together. Uh, you can do like a, a meal, uh, you can do... Uh, twice a week if you're gung-ho and you know uh, but you, you can do it as you will uh, in a community and uh, we're just going to keep each other accountable but before you know, we, we, we respond to God uh, in song and just ask for His grace I like to do a couple of things and so um, first a uh, group of people I like to uh, pray for is um, you know uh, as I was talking about food and its relationship with food um, some of you uh, you know as, as I was saying I know this is really sensitive uh, you have an unhealthy relationship with food um, and, and I believe that the grace of God is here and He wants to uh, break that, that, uh, that hole that's over your life. You know, some of you uh, binge eat, some of you use food as a means of comfort, some of you uh, battle with eating disorders and have done so for your whole lives. And, uh, and I know the spiritual practice of fasting brings up all sorts of trauma. You think like, wow, you know, this just feeds into my dysfunction, this just feeds into... Uh, that thing that I've been battling in and I believe that the Lord is going to speak to you on how you can actively engage in fasting even whilst working through that part of your life but I really believe that there is a power in the room right now to see an end uh, to unhealthy relationships with food unhealthy relationships with food that the curse that was brought about because of the fall can be undone by the work of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so can we just close your eyes in this place? Worship team included, close your eyes in this place. Everybody close your eyes. Uh, we'll turn the live stream off for just a moment. Yes, close your eyes, every single person in this place, and I won't move on until you do so. If you have an unhealthy relationship with food, maybe you overeat, maybe you use it as a tool of comfort, maybe it's really your God, or you battle with eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia, I would like to pray for you. So this moment, with every eye closed, every eye closed, great. I'd like you to lift your hands real quickly, and when I see it, I'll pray for you. On the count of three, one, two, three. Anyone? Okay, I see your hands, thank you. Thank you, thank you, I see your hands, thank you. Thank you. Okay, you can put them down. I'll just wait for just five more seconds. Unhealthy relationship to food, one prayer, you want that to be broken over your life. Anorexia, bulimia, self-image issues. There's deliverance here. Great. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that at the mention of your name, every stronghold comes tumbling down. 
at the mention of your name the yoke of satan is destroyed at the mention of your name chains come undone bondages are loose people are liberated so we speak the liberating presence that comes with the name of jesus over these lives jesus in your name we speak liberation and freedom to the bondage of food Father, we thank you for the good gift that is food. And Father, in Jesus' name, right now, we break every unhealthy association, every unhealthy partnership and ties to gluttony, to anorexia, to bulimia. Right now, in Jesus' name, we speak the freedom, the liberating presence of the Lord Jesus. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So, Spirit of God, fall afresh on these individuals. Fall afresh on them. Fill them with your presence. Fill them with your freedom. We speak deliverance and freedom over this life. In Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Now for the rest of you, you know, I spoke an hour about fasting. How many of you want to try to fast? How many of you? Yeah? Okay, some of you. How many of you would consider trying to fast? <laughs> some of you. Um, it's an invitation. And then, and, uh, you know, if you desire... A more breakthrough, you're hitting a wall, you find it really tough to move on in spirituality. My encouragement to you is try fasting. If you're contending for certain breakthroughs in the life of your family, your own lives, my encouragement is to you is to try fasting. You know, if you battle with sin, guilt, and shame, try fasting. And I'll just try, it's an invitation to experience Jesus' vision for your life, life in all its fullness. And so if that is you, you want to try fasting, uh, just put a hand on your own heart. We're going to ask corporately for the grace of God to meet us where we're at. I want to do fasting better. I want to have it as a rhythm in my life. I want to see more of that in my own life. So we're praying uh, into this together. So hand on your own heart if you want to try this. Jesus, we ask for your grace to meet us here in this place. Lord, we thank you that uh, your commandments, that your calls uh, do not come void of grace. Uh, Lord, that you do not expect us to live into it on our own, but uh, you so long to partner with us, to co-labor with us into living that vision. So Spirit of God, we invite you to come to breathe upon uh, the decisions that we're going to make, to breathe upon our hearts, our minds, our body, even as we seek to honor you in a greater measure. Lord, we thank you for the gift that is fasting. It's not bondage, it's not tyranny, it's not legalism, it is freedom. Lord, we thank you for this gift that you've given to us so that we may live in accordance to your spirit and die to the flesh. We thank you for this gift. God, we ask that you'll give us grace and wisdom on how we are to better engage with the gift that you've so given to us. We thank you for your grace, for your love, for your mercy. In Jesus' name, all God's people say, Amen.